given that we're primarily an entrepreneur's advocate, um, we kind of look at the balance of trade in terms of the economic sharing between the private equity firms and the entrepreneurs. And um, I'd say that the entrepreneurs are really losing the race for the most part. Um, the, the preponderance of the economics are going to the financial engineers and, and the private equity folks. Welcome to the Fueling Deals Podcast, the podcast that teaches how to accelerate your business growth through all types of deals. It's time to fuel up, so buckle in with your host, Corey Kupfer. There are only two ways to grow your business, organically through sales and marketing and providing great products and services, and inorganically through deals. Too many companies focus only on the first way, organic growth. Welcome to the podcast, which will help accelerate your business growth inorganically. My guests are a huge variety of deal makers and experts on all types of deals who have personal experience that can help you grow, get clear, learn best practices, and avoid mistakes. We discuss everything from large complex mergers and acquisitions to smaller deals that you can do even without significant capital. My guest today is Dan Sieber. Dan is the CEO and founder of Echelon Partners, one of the leading investment banks and consulting firms to the wealth and investment management industries. Over his 24-year career, Mr. Siebert, uh, has advised on more than 400 M&A assignments, valued over 1,500 companies, and evaluated more than 2,000 acquisition targets. Uh, listen, the rest of Dan's bio is going to be on, in the show notes. You should check it out. I mean, he serves on boards. He's got you know major publications and white papers out. He's uh, you know I've known Dan for boy over a dozen years in this industry, and he's really one of the leading investment bankers in the space. And Dan's been a good partner and friend in the industry, and. Uh, he runs this great conference that we're going to talk about. So uh, he's going to bring a lot to the show, I'm sure. Dan, it's great to have you on the show. Hi, Corey. It's great to join you. And congratulations on kicking off this uh, highly value-added uh, show, Fueling Deals. And it's, um, it's a pleasure to be one of their first uh, speakers and to help you and your audience with uh, a very important subject related to growth and entrepreneurship. Uh, it's great. So listen, I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to uh, talking about, you know, what you see in the industry and the kind of deals that are going on now, what you're working on and, and all the value you can bring uh, the audience. But I want to take you back uh, first with a, a question that I've been asking on the podcast. People can get to know you, which is, um, so when you were growing up, Dan, um, uh, you know, when you were whatever it was, 6, 8, 10, 12 years old, what did you want to be when you were growing up? Because my guess is an investment banker at the uh, uh, wealth and investment management space was probably not it at that time, but you tell me. Um, well, I grew up doing a lot of outdoor sports, uh, which included uh, surfing and a lot of time down at the beach. And I thought uh, the ultimate job would be a meteorologist where I could help people understand the weather. And as part of that, be very in tune with uh, what's going on with the waves uh, down at the beach. Oh, I love that. I love that. And I know you still, I mean, uh, you know, I know you're a big cyclist. And so despite your, you know, busy schedule, you still, uh, you still get some of that outdoor activity in, right? I do. And I often uh, wonder what my life would be like if I were um, on the TV, uh, having to compete with today's meteorologists, I think um, <laughs> <laughs> it would be a tough time because uh, the profile has changed quite a bit since, uh, uh, Dallas Rains and Johnny Mountain, who were the meteorologists when I was growing up. Well, the the, the one advantage, uh, though, uh, uh, to it would be that uh, apparently they have a job where they can be wrong 50% of the time and still uh, have a job. Uh, you and I couldn't do that in our businesses. 
Well, yeah, and it's it's pretty um, pretty tough to be wrong in Southern California. Well, no, that's true. You see, uh, yeah, you're right. That was an East Coast guy comment. Even though I spent half my time in Southern California now, on the East Coast, uh, there's much more variation, and they tend to get it wrong a lot. Um, so, Dan, my other question before we get to the present day is, uh, what was your first real business? However, you define that. Was that Echelon? Did you have businesses when you were a kid or in college, or you know, what, what was your first real business? Great question. So I grew up um, a few houses from a fairway on uh, on Glendora Country Club, and uh, the first business was to walk around the golf course and find golf balls, and also go in the lakes and find golf balls, uh, and then to put those into egg cartons, and then we would sell those for a dollar each um, as the golfers went from the front nine to the back nine. And I think by the age of of twelve, I had had about five thousand dollars, and uh, that was enough to buy easily buy my first car and you know do other things that I wanted. Oh, I love that! I love these these early entrepreneurial stories. You know, so that's that's fantastic. Um, so Dan, just give us uh, you know give us a few minutes on on Echelon. I mean, you know, at a high level, we already talked about it. Uh, you know, you guys being really one of the leading uh, investment banking firms uh, and consulting firms in the wealth management space. Uh, but talk a little bit about, you know, the different things that you do for clients in the space. Sure. So Echelon was founded 18 years ago, and it was generally, the general concept was to serve uh, three sub-industries within financial services and to offer them three core products. So the the three target markets, if you will, that we were focused in on and still are, were investment managers. So anybody that um, was involved in developing an investment product um, and principally involved in in the activity of choosing stocks and bonds or other um, investment vehicles and packaging them for sale to retail advisors or um, to offer um, portfolio management to endowments, foundations, and corporations. Uh, the next group is wealth managers. And so those wealth managers were oftentimes using the products of the investment managers. Um, and they too came in all different shapes and sizes. We work with, uh, with wirehouses and the advisors that work for wirehouses. We work for RIAs, financial planning firms, single-family offices, multi-family offices, and uh, any type of, a, of an RIA or wealth manager that works in a law firm, an accounting firm, an investment management firm. So they come um, in all different business models. And then the last group is wealth tech firms, which are principally the technology-oriented firms that are really connecting either wealth managers or investment managers to the rest of, of the industry. In terms of the services that we offer, the first is valuation services, where we help firms uh, understand valuation in a lot of different uh, contexts. It's not just in a buy or a sell transaction, but also related to bringing on new partners, the exit of partners. It could be the the sudden death of a partner. Um, It could be raising capital, whether it's debt or equity. A lot of people think that valuation that each firm has one valuation, but in reality, firms have many valuations based on the context and the situation. I think the next area is really consulting services, and there um, we offer strategic planning, assistance with succession and continuity planning, 
help with uh, growing pains as firms move through different business cycles. And then our number one solution is help with equity sharing programs, which is an interesting sort of uh, in-between of the valuation work and the investment banking work that we do. Oftentimes, entrepreneurial firms struggle um, a great deal with how to share ownership. And given my involvement and history in private equity, um, I have a lot of experience in helping entrepreneurs overcome those challenges. And we've trademarked a couple of different solutions, um, one of which is called dynamic equity sharing, which has become very popular in the industry and allows uh, equity to flex um, as uh, as uh, the contributions of the partners uh, change over time. So um, the final area is investment banking, um, which is oftentimes a, a big word for the wealth management space. But it, we principally help entrepreneurs with buying firms, selling firms, merging firms, and then doing transactions between each other. So this uh, encompasses a, a typical life cycle of preparing marketing materials, as well as um, understanding who the, the buyers and the sellers are in the space, help assisting with deal structuring, tax advisory, negotiating the transaction. And then we also prepare letters of understanding, which we hand off um, to uh, legal experts like yourself uh, to finalize and close the transactions. So that's that's a general overview of of who we're serving and how we help. So that's great. So I want to I want to pick a couple. We, there's so much we can talk about, and you and I, I mean, with all the expertise and all the deals you've done, we could talk for hours. But obviously, in a podcast, we have to sort of pick and choose. So I want to hit a couple areas that uh, are uh, you know of 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 interest and maybe. Um, we haven't covered quite as much. So this, the equity sharing conversation, uh, I really want to delve into that with you, Dan, because, uh, you know, it's interesting. I've, um, there are different models out there in, in the industry, right? There are, there are firms where uh, they, you know, share equity a lot uh, and true equity uh, across, uh, you know, uh, various uh, people. There are firms out there, um, you know, that where, where there's one owner and even large firms, right? You know, where maybe they use some sort of phantom equity, a synthetic equity program. Um, and uh, and there's everything everything in between. So when you advise firms on their uh, equity sharing uh, programs, um, you know, what factors do you take into account and, and, and where do you come out on the, on the spectrum of, you know, of true equity versus synthetic equity and what circumstances you should share equity or not share equity and, you know, how do you how do you help uh, clients uh, figure that out? Well, I think um, there's a lot of questions in there, Corey. But so let yeah. me let me see if I can uh, unpack that, so to speak. The first thing is is uh, to understand that equity compensation is a part of a larger compensation package, which usually includes base compensation, bonus uh, benefits, uh, sometimes profit sharing plans, and sometimes um, retirement plan. Uh, benefits as well. So the the equity sharing portion is usually that advanced piece that is done last and is reserved for um, the most valuable employees or partners in the firm. The way that we figure out how much equity sharing makes sense is to first identify who's adding the value in the company and how much value was initially added by the founders. So we always view there being kind of a foundational um, 
development of the company and setting up of the firm. And we want to make sure that the founders and the original entrepreneurs and the risk takers and the ones that provided that initial risk capital have a, a reward that is commensurate with that profile. As firms develop, the risk oftentimes goes down and there's more economic proceeds to share. Um, and so we look into the different partners and see what's their pro rata contribution to the firm. And there's really, after the founders, there's really two types of contributors within wealth management firms and frankly, investment management firms. For the wealth managers, it's those, those advisors that are doing the rainmaking and those advisors that are doing the client service. Uh, beyond that, there's a host of other professionals that help the operation or help the organization with its, with its growth and its development and just running smoothly. Oftentimes, that's the chief legal officer, the chief investment officer, the chief marketing officer. There's somebody who's the head of technology, operations, HR, um, and then uh, compliance is sometimes bundled, um, and there might be a marketing officer if I didn't mention that already. So having some, some sense of the relative contribution of those professionals is, is a really good starting point. And then understanding where the founder group wants to go with equity sharing and where they are presently um, is also a good way a, or a good set of touchstones uh, to look into. So what we oftentimes find firms that are getting into the billion dollar range is one, two, or three founders that have principally shared the ownership equally between each other, and now they want to begin sharing it with the next-gen partners or the next wave of value contributors. And oftentimes, the metric that they're working with is sharing 5 or 10 or maybe 15% of the organization. So the, the ways that people often contemplate sharing the equity is, do I give it away or do I make um, these next-gen partners buy it? And if they if it's given away, what's the tax implication? And if they buy it, um, how much? What's the valuation? And how do I get capital in their hands to be able to to make the acquisitions? Or do they need to go to the bank? And that's that's um, how we start to originally gauge the sizing, and um, and also we do some uh, cash flow analysis to help the founders understand what amount they would get back in the transaction and then to help the next gen partners understand um, what their base bonus and profit sharing as well as distribution sharing would mean to them and then factor in uh, the amount that they'd end up paying off for the loan, the principal and interest so that they can get an after debt servicing uh, estimate of what their cash flow would be and also after tax estimate uh, so they can manage their affairs and they can understand um, the benefits and the costs associated with a transaction like that. So, so let me ask you something on a specific point you made, because I tend to be in one camp on this, not, not a hard and fast rule, but I tend to lean heavily. And that is that, you know, that, that decision on whether you have um, your uh, people pay for equity or uh, whether they get equity, true equity, and I tend to, and feel free to disagree with me. You don't have to agree with me. Um, I tend to lean heavily towards, uh, you know, having in, in this industry, having people, uh, in any industry, having people pay for equity on the theory that if they don't pay for it, they don't value it as much. And 
unless you've been underpaying them, uh, you know, if you haven't been compensating them well, like in, you know, outside this industry, like in tech firms where people are going to take a lot lower salary for the upside and whatever, that's different because part of their comp is equity. But in this industry, if you've been paying them well, my, my sort of view is, well, they should, you know, with some exceptions, they should more often than not buy in. Uh, agree or disagree? Generally speaking, I strongly disagree. Um, I think uh, great. <laughs> the reason is that is, is that um, buying into a firm is a very um, tax heavy endeavor and there's ways to structure it um, that you can significantly reduce the taxes. And the way that the general flow goes is that if you wanted to sell me $100,000 worth of equity, um, let's say your firm is worth a million dollars and you wanted to sell me 10% and you think, you know, you're going to extend that privilege to me, but my, my, my compensation is only $200,000 right now. And after tax, um, it's probably closer to $120,000. And right. so that is, you know, it's going to be tough for me to make that, that $100,000 acquisition. But let's just say that you, you, wanted to do that and you're going to help me out. And so you're going to, you know, you had to bonus me the, the amount necessary to do that. So you'd have to bonus me $170,000. I'd pay tax on that. That gets me down to $100,000 in which I could pay you out. And then once I pay you, you're going to pay capital gains on that. So that's going to leave you with $65,000. So you just bonus me $170,000 and you only got 65,000 back and the government got $105,000. And there's another way to do that transaction where I can basically cut the taxes in half. Um, and without sort of giving away the secret sauce, sure. um, we know how to, we know how to do this. And, uh, and it's, it's very attractive and um, of great interest to our clients. And um, it's good for you. It's good for the next gen partner. And, you know, we're not, we're not necessarily paying as much taxes. So it's a win, win, win. Well, that's great. And listen, I, I do agree. If you're going to bonus them the money to pay you, that, that, that doesn't make sense. I totally agree. And, there, and listen, there are, unlike uh, only five, seven years ago, even, there are a lot uh, more lending options available for these types of transactions uh, than there ever were, right? I mean, that's one benefit where next gen, uh, I mean, geez, uh, five, seven years ago, I mean, next gen had, uh, you know, very few options to be able to get uh, funding for these type of deals, but there's, uh, at least I'm finding, uh, there's more options these days at least, right? Oh yeah, definitely. I think, um, you know, prior to five years ago, the only way to get things done was through a seller note. And there's actually some pretty good advantages to seller notes, but most of the disadvantages um, accrue to the, to the seller. And um, so the financing options have been um, you know, there's there's some specialists, uh, probably uh, five to ten more common options, and beyond that, in terms of you know community and regional banking, um, there's probably another forty. Um, but that's up significantly, and that's making transactions a lot easier to do. And frankly, um, it's really contributing significantly to the to the deal volume, as you know, as your show would suggest uh, it's fueling deals and uh, <laughs> perhaps, you know, no other, no other uh, element within the wealth management industry has fueled deals more 
than um, than the availability of capital under um, I think reasonable terms, and um, and the process has become significant e significantly easier um, to go through as well. Yeah, yeah, I think that's been a huge change in the industry. Um, I want to jump back to one of the areas you talked about because we haven't covered it as much on the show, and I think it's important in the industry, which is the whole uh, you know wealth tech fintech uh, uh, space. Um, you know, where there have been uh, a number of deals and where companies have tried. I mean, you look at somebody like United Capital, who uh, basically try to, you know, right, create a fintech play within United Capital, to try to increase the value. You can make an argument on whether that had any play in terms of what Goldman Sachs paid for it or what you think about the deal in general. I'm not asking for a commentary on that particular deal, but it's an example. Um, you know, talk to me about what you're seeing in terms of uh, fintech deals, uh, you know, in the industry, and uh, you know, it seems like there's uh, more of a volume of those, and 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 you know, the uh, the tech side of, in this industry is also a growing area. Right. Well, I think um, the way that we look at uh, well, what we call it wealth tech, because it's it's um, the subset of the fintech space that specifically uh, relates to the wealth management industry, and that's a term that we coined kind of in, in the beginning of the trend. Yep. Um, but what we like to think think um, wealth tech is, is kind of like the different modes of, of transportation, whether it's planes, trains, automobiles, or, or scooters. It's just uh, another element that's uh, facilitating the growth and development of, of the wealth management industry. And I would say that it was very big in the late 90s when I was working as um, in private equity and um, it sort of ebbed for the, the next six years. But um, once we came out of the financial downturn in, in 08 and 09, it's really had a, a rebirth and has become a very significant part of our industry. I would say that there's a couple of key themes and ways that firms are, are playing the space. There are um, single sleeve specialists, if you will, that are focused on one element, be it portfolio accounting or uh, CRM or um, account aggregation or um, portfolio management or uh, tax rebalancing. So there's a whole bunch of different sleeves. That's one play and there's companies that have that business model. And then there's more of the aggregate play where you're taking more of a Microsoft Office approach and you're trying to Put together a suite of solutions such that the end consumer gets everything done within your brand and all the sub brands which kind of equate to excel word and powerpoint um, so the players um, like that include um, orion increasingly morningstar uh, ssnc uh, investnet um, and those those providers are looking to be uh, a one-stop solution and to add a lot of value in, in terms of the integration of their of their solutions. So it's been um, it's been a, a great opportunity for entrepreneurs to specialize and then also the the best firms that are specializing in, in any particular area become strategically important to those who are building the universal solutions. So we saw um, E-Money was an early example of a specialist um, that traded uh, at $300 million and then Money Guide Pro recently trading for $500 million. 
just shows the the wealth creation opportunity that's available for for entrepreneurs specializing in tech solutions for the wealth management industry. So I think it's it's very exciting. It brings an element of change to the industry. It's forcing everyone um, to up their game in terms of the user interface, the solutions that are offered, and it's really putting a lot of pressure on those firms that are that are the owners of the technology suite, such as the larger firms like the wirehouses or the independent broker dealers, Satera, LPL, Merrill Lynch, Morgan Stanley. As advisors are choosing to work with the firms that have the best suite of solutions. So um, it's fun in that it introduces a lot of change. Um, and it's also a catalyst um, that causes everybody to become better um, as they try and keep up with um, this constant evolution of technology. So it's interesting, Dan, as I think about it, we've talked about a couple of trends that have really uh, affected the industry so far, which is, you know, the wealth tech, uh, you know, uh, what we just talked about, and then also uh, the increased availability of capital. Mainly, we, we, we were referring previously to uh, loan capital. Uh, but the other thing that's happened, right, is that there's been a lot more uh, private equity and venture capital money that's come into space. And then, of course, we have, uh, you know, firms like Focus Financial going public. So, uh, you know, for me, these are all signs of a, of what's really a maturing industry. And you see these kind of things happen in other industries that have been maturing. Um, so what do you see in terms of, uh, you know, th that increased money in terms of the private equity venture capital side of things and the funding of the aggregators and the impact of that in the space? I think it's a funny paradox um, because, uh, you know, we track the, the private equity involvement and I think that the number of PE firms that are backing robo-advisors is over 100 and the number of PE firms that are backing just general wealth management firms, whether it's a single RIA or um, a roll-up firm or uh some it, it could be um, a broker dealer play uh, that too is over 100 private equity firms so over 200 private equity firms that are that are in the industry uh, i think given that we're primarily an entrepreneur's advocate um, we kind of look at the balance of trade in terms of the economic sharing between the private equity firms and the entrepreneurs and um, I'd say that the entrepreneurs are really losing the race for the most part. Um, the, the preponderance of the economics are going to the financial engineers and, and the private equity folks. And, and um, what's uh, funny is that, and the reason why I said it's a paradox is that there's now so many private equity folks um, involved that they're the ones that are driving down their own returns as they uh, compete for deals. Um, I think all the while, the entrepreneurial wealth managers, for the most part, are still losing as they leave way too much money on the table on their deal making. Um, but uh, I think um, overall, the private equity investors are creating some some attractive liquidity um, options, but they're they could be way more attractive uh, if the if the entrepreneurs uh, understood a little bit more of the way that private equity valuation works. Interesting. And and talk to me a little bit. This is like a favorite topic of mine. I've seen it in other industries and I've uh, sometimes been quoted in some of the press around this, which is the whole, as money comes in, you know, because obviously one of the things with private equity and, you know, and you, you're very familiar with that space, uh, you know, comes in is that, you know, capital, 
you know, there's pressure to deploy capital, there's pressure to grow, there's pressure to create returns, there's pressure, to, you know, there's usually uh, a, a time period, whether it's five years or seven years or, you know, 10 years, but usually more like five. So, you know, where, where, where private equity wants to be able to exit and, and capitalize on their investment. And that creates certain incentives. And it, it raises the conversation for me always of deal discipline. And do you have a view of what you've been seeing out there in terms of deal discipline? I'm talking about like the fun, the firms that are funded and who are buying now using that capital to buy, uh, you know, more firms uh, in terms of, um, you know, are they are they overpaying? Are they doing good deals or, you know, and, and we're not talking about anybody in particular, but what do you see in the industry in terms of deal discipline and the uh, need to deploy capital? It's a good question. I like the, the language that you're using to describe that because I, Deal discipline to me um, really relates to um, a strict adherence to a certain deal profile and a commitment to doing a certain volume of deals in a certain time frame. So what that sounds like is we're only going to do billion dollar transactions for firms that focus in on clients with more than a million in, in investable assets. And we're going to do three of those a year and, and get uh, approximately $4 billion of, of transaction value done, done each year. Um, overall, I would say that the deal discipline is more flexible in the wealth management space than what I've seen in other industries. And I think that is kind of a requirement because... Um, as as you've advised different wealth management firms, you've you've recognized that to a certain extent, each of these is is unique, like a snowflake. And and maybe if you were real generous, you could kind of bundle them into six different business models. Um, and so I think being flexible is almost a requirement to doing deal making in the space. And so deal discipline, um, if you tried to go after that. Um, rigorously, I think you'd, you'd be frustrated and, and have a hard time with that. And so I think um, that bodes well for the entrepreneurial advisor because I think they get more looks and um, I think fewer people, and we see this in our deal processes, few people are, are um, you know, quick to, to fold and say that that doesn't fit. And, and we see more of a situation where people are at least willing to give it a look and a consideration and to maybe flex their criteria a little bit to make things happen out of recognition of the fact that there's so many unique firms out there um, doing things in, in their own way. Yeah, no, I, I think that's a good point. I agree with that. What, what about around um, valuation and pricing? Because sometimes when money comes into a space, there's a pressure to get deals done, and they lose discipline around um, making good deals in terms of uh, in terms of pricing. Do uh, you think the firms are doing a pretty good job of uh, making good business decisions uh, these days, or do you feel like there's any uh, inflation of value uh, because of the need to deploy capital? Well, you know, I would describe it as um, you know, wealth managers are selling dollars for forty to seventy cents, and so you know. For buyers, that's that's a great thing. They'd be buying buying those those dollars all day long. But for um, for the selling entrepreneurial wealth manager, it kind of makes you shake your head and say, "I don't get it." Um, but I think we we explain it that 
um, kind of as like the perfect, perfect blind spot for advisors and that uh, because they know wealth management, they think they know corporate finance and they mm. don't um, understand the difference. And uh, so they, uh, they oftentimes um, don't see, they think they're selling dollars for a dollar, but that's definitely not the case. I love it. So, you know, what I hear you saying, Dan, and then listen, listeners, this is an important point. Uh, you know, despite the additional capital coming into the space where, you know, sometimes that could cause a run up in, uh, you know, in, in firms overpaying. I mean, what I hear Dan saying is that, you know, you still a lot of firms are still getting underpaid uh, by the uh, by the, the professional money. And that, um, you know, definitely, I mean, you know, he doesn't need to say this about himself, but I'll say it that, you know, you want to get somebody like him involved in these deals because they understand uh, the the investment bank and finance, the VC world, the uh, private equity world, and you know where there may be some more room to get you some more economic benefit in a deal like that. So uh, I think that's a, that's a great point. And uh, you know, we may not that gap that uh, that opportunity may not last forever, right? You know, the more and more money that comes in, the more the fewer deals that there are. Sometimes that shifts. So it sounds like it's a good opportunity to take advantage of that at this time. Yeah, I mean, I mean, just by contrast, um, observe what it sounds like when I, if I were to say they're the sellers are selling dollars for a buck twenty, that just that just sounds, you know, that sounds like it might be more commensurate with with the supply and demand that should be going on in the space, um, because I think conventional wisdom is that there's a lot of buyers with a lot of capital and there's very few sellers. And that describing something being trading at a premium price is more in line with what should be going on, but um, it's not. Interesting, fascinating. So then are there any other, um, I'm just gonna ask you a general question. Is, is there anything else that you think our listeners should know about what's going on in the M&A space, the valuation space, and the equity space, and you know all those things that you do, any big trends or any things that, uh, they might be surprised about or, you know, any, anything uh, you think would be valuable for them to hear? I think, um, yes, it's, it's important to understand that, um, you know, kind of behind the scenes, there's this pendulum going back and forth uh, between internal and external deals. And I think um, for the most part, uh, internal deals represented somewhere in the, in the mid 40% of all deals. And uh, up until, say, about two years ago, that was increasing to the point where it got probably close to 60% of transactions were moving to to internal deals. But as firms have been getting bigger and as the business cycle has gone on and has there's been more of a, of a focus on the fact that there's some discounting associated with the valuation of internal deals, and they're not always the easiest to pull off. The pendulum has recently swung back and is moving in the other direction to favor external deals. And um, this, you know, sort of back and forth uh, is, is something that isn't really that well known, but that we, we keep track of. Uh, and it definitely is kind of part of the, almost like the the auto nervous system of of the wealth management industry to to understand um you know kind of some of the the biorhythms of of deal making and um, we think it's important to keep track of 
and um, and also to have that conversation with our wealth management clients to because I think one of the first questions they ask us is is to figure out what's what's the difference between an internal succession transaction and a sale to a third party. What are the advantages and disadvantages from a legacy, a people or human capital standpoint, and from a from an economic standpoint? And if there were that's one one main subject or issue that sort of encompassed all the things that we've talked about so far. It's really that because it, it brings into play valuation, equity sharing, um, the, uh, the 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 types of buyers and, and transactions that you'd be doing, um, the roll up firms, private equity, uh, as well as um, I think the the final one was financing. Um, all those come into play with respect to that tip of the arrow issue. So I, I, in terms of, of uh, a topic for fueling deals, that's, that's a, a key trend and, and a very important one. Uh, so that's great. So um, b- before I ask you my final question, I want I want you to give people an opportunity to you know know where, where to reach you because I'm sure they got huge amounts of value. And uh, before I turn it over to you, I, I want to give though a, a plug here, and I'll let Dan talk about it a little more. But um, you know, Dan and and, and his, his firm Echelon run this uh, Deal and Dealmakers uh, conference uh, for what is this going to be, Dan? The eighth or ninth year coming up, something like that. It's the ninth edition and the eighth year. Got it. So the ninth edition, uh, and um, and uh, you know I've I've had the pleasure of attending uh, some of them. In fact, uh, in the years where I've had some sort of conflict and couldn't make it, I've been very disappointed because it's always really uh, you know there are a lot of big conferences out there that the custodians put on and other people put on, and uh, you know uh, Dan's conference is is a is, is a conference that is smaller in a great way because it's it's a focused group of people who are interested in in in, in deals and deal making. In, in you know in, in in the space and he's got you know he always has phenomenal people there so the next one's coming up what is it uh september 3rd and 4th then that's right in newport beach great so, so september 3rd and 4th newport beach so if people want to find out about that i'm definitely going to be there uh, uh folks you should definitely come it's a phenomenal conference uh if people want to find out more about that or your firm in general what's the best place for them to go dan www.dealsanddealmakers.com or they can uh, go to the echelon-partners.com website and um, learn learn more about it there as well. Ah, so that's so that's great. Um, uh, yeah, so I'm really looking forward to this year's summit. Uh, like I said, Dan does a great job with that. And obviously, folks, you, you've heard the various things that he does and he and his team, and he's got a phenomenal team as well uh, doing the industry. So uh, definitely reach out to him. Um, you know, huge amount of knowledge and background there. Um, so, Dan, uh, bef- uh, my last question for you, uh, which is the last question I always ask on the podcast, uh, you know, you know me well enough to know that authenticity is a uh, and very important value of mine. In fact, you know, my book is uh, a couple of years ago, I had the pleasure of speaking at uh, Dan's conference and, and doing a book signing around the time when my uh, authentic negotiating book uh, was released. Um, so, you know, authenticity is a big value of mine. And I always like to ask my guests, uh, you know, in, in terms of for me, authenticity means alignment with our, our values and ourselves. It's not about some external morals or integrity, but it's about making our life and business decisions and, and doing our deals in a way that's aligned with, uh, you know, who we are and what's right for us. So I, I love your take on that and how that may affect the way, you know, you advise clients and, and um, uh, you know, uh, what authenticity means for you in terms of the way you do business. 
Well, I love the concept and um, I'm, I'm congratulations on completing your book and it's uh, great to partner with you, Corey. Um, and that's a authentic communication and authentic deal-making is very aligned with our core values as well. It makes me think of uh, the importance of, of human capital and deal-making. And I think people maybe overuse the, the importance of culture and maybe underthink what comes maybe a level down from that, which is, which is human capital. Um, and it, it's certainly uh, an area that we work hard to cover in the Deals and Dealmakers Summit uh, and always have a special session devoted to that. But if you look at the, the buyer and the seller or the, the two parties that, that come to a table, oftentimes um, maybe the bubble over their head is filled um, with a dollar sign or with uh, some financial elements. But we find that some of the most successful deal making actually has people that are more um, in tune with uh, the emotional intelligence associated with the deal that their focus is to do a quality transaction first and, and, and let the numbers um, work themselves after that. It's partnership first. Um, and it's building a great firm that comes ahead of the growth. And that sometimes when you put the growth first and you don't look uh, enough at the people, particularly in the wealth management business, then um, things become misaligned and you run into more challenges than um, are surmountable. And sometimes the deals can come unraveled. So I think as a, as a, overarching concept authentic communication authentic deal making is is really a great banner and um something that that we can all learn from and and um be be in tune with in our deal making and I appreciate you elevating it Corey. well i i appreciate you saying that dan and i and i, and I really appreciate having you on the show I'm, I'm glad we were able to get this together uh you know uh it's it's been great to have you as a guest my pleasure thanks for the opportunity and um Best wishes uh, for, for you and your team for the rest of the year and for, for all your clients that have the, the privilege to work with you. Thanks, Dan. And thank you, Fueling Deals listeners, for tuning in. Remember, there's only one difference between companies that grow inorganically and those that don't. And it's unrelated to size, amount of capital, or any other factor other than that the owners and executives of companies that do deals make a decision to do deals. And then they take action. Well, it's time to refuel. So until next week... Corey Kupfer, signing out. Thank you again for tuning in. Be sure to leave Fueling Deals a rating and review on iTunes and Google. Check out all our episodes at fuelingdeals.com to find out more resources to accelerate your business growth. 